Would you join me in prayer as we open our service today? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you um, for its comfort, for its truth, and for the wisdom and guidance that it provides for us. Thank you that it is your inspired word, and that as we look at this passage, we do see your truth um, reflected in your character um, and spoken to us. And so, Lord, would you help us during this time to simply revel in that truth, to revel in the fact that we have a God who knows us, who loves us, and who has acted to redeem us, a God who is holy and who is transcendent and who yet acts in this world on our behalf. And so we do thank you um, for this privilege, and we pray for your help as we read this passage. Um, Open our eyes to its truth. Would your spirit convict our hearts as we meditate on this word? And I pray that we would come away from this time with a greater desire to walk closely with you and to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in Matthew chapter 24, and Matthew 24 is a part of the Olivet Discourse, which deals with Jesus' discussion of the end times, Jesus' discussion of eschatology and what to expect in the end times. And so, um, at this point, we've all lived through scenarios that feel like the end of the world. And perhaps it's too soon to joke about stocking up on toilet paper, or Germex. So I'm going to go 20 years before that to Y2K and the hysteria that surrounded and, and caught up many of us at the turn of the century. And so for Y2K, um, I was nine years old, turning 10. And so my memory of what happened with Y2K, I find rather humorous, especially having just gone through 2020 and the pandemic and, and all of that. And um, so the one thing I remember about Y2K, and who knows where I picked this up, was that the electricity was going to get shut off. And that was terrifying. However, I comforted myself with one thought. And it was the fact that we lived on a farm. And on this farm, there happened to still be an ancient wash house with the furnace and the kettles and the clothesline that we could hang our clothes on. And so I thought, even if the power goes down and we lose electricity and and we don't have any heat or anything, at least we can still do our laundry. (laughs) We can still boil water, wash our clothes, and hang it on the line, and we'll be like great-grandma Swartz out there doing our laundry that way. So as a 10-year-old, I comforted myself with that thought. I also took it upon myself to check up on the stockpile of food that my parents had, had gathered. And we really didn't gather that much. We had maybe a couple five-gallon buckets in the basement with food in it. But as a nine-year-old, I decided I needed to make sure that the essentials were there. You know, things like Trix cereal, Cheez-Its, those really important things. Wanted to make sure those were in our, our stockpile of food. Well, unfortunately, my parents hadn't got my message, and they had really boring things like flour and sugar and things like that. Um, I guess that's going to be helpful if you can't go to the grocery store. But I comforted myself with one thing that I found in those buckets, and that was that we had a couple bottles of pancake syrup. (laughs) I felt really good knowing we had a couple bottles of pancake syrup down there, and that even if the world ended and everything fell apart, I could still have some maple syrup on my pancakes. So, I don't know, maybe that's how a 10-year-old thinks about the world coming to an end, making sure you have those, those creature comforts. But even though we can laugh about that today, especially looking back 20 years ago as to what we were thinking about with Y2K and the turn of the century and and all of that, we can remember the fear that gripped many of us during that time and the fear of the world coming to an end and, and what that would feel like. 
And um, we can look back and laugh on those things, but in the moment, it was very easy to get sucked into those feelings of fear um, and concern with the world coming to an end. And, and I appreciate the fact that my parents taught us very well during that season to not give in to fear and that we didn't have to be afraid regardless of what was happening in the world that was around us. But that is how we tend to respond to things that threaten the end of the world. Things that sound like the end of the world inspire us with fear. Fear grips our hearts and our lives when we encounter those things. And, and why is that? Why is our response to those things always to respond in fear? Well, it's the fear of the unknown. We're not sure what's going to happen. We're not sure how this is going to affect our lives, our families, or things like that. And so the unknown inspires that fear in us. Maybe it's the fear of hardship or the harsh realities of having to do without certain things that we've become accustomed to, like Cheez-Its. Maybe that causes us to be afraid or those feelings of consternation as we approach those things. But regardless of the reason, the overwhelming response for the culture at large as well as Christians is to approach the end of the world with fear. There's nothing in us that generates more fear than those sorts of things. So as we look at Christ's words about the end of the world, I want you to realize how dissonant that response is from us compared to the words that Christ gives. Rather than responding with fear and consternation, Christ urges us to respond with courage and hope, even as we face the end of the world. Notice this quote specifically. This comes from verse 6. See to it that you are not alarmed. See to it that you are not alarmed. If there were a thesis statement for this whole passage, I think it is that. Jesus urges us. He commands us. It's an imperative that we would not approach these things with fear and consternation, but rather we approach these things with hope and with confidence, assurance, in who our God is. That's how Jesus encourages us to approach these things in this passage. Now, this passage also is the setting or the site for many um, turf disputes among different camps in the evangelical world. So depending on your eschatology, you interpret this passage and certain statements in it differently. And my goal this morning is not to get embroiled in that kind of a controversy. Um, there are good reasons and good theology and thinking in all of those camps. And so uh, there's much more that we agree on in this passage than we disagree on. And so I'd rather this morning like us to spend our time focusing on the truths that unite us in this passage rather than delving into the things that cause division among the church and focus on the essentials of this passage that give us hope and confidence for the future as we look forward. So, with all of that, I'm just going to pull that off before it falls. With all of that as prolegomena, we actually need to finish up some of our context in chapter 23. So, we'll move back up to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39 first. These are Jesus' words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now remember, Jesus utters these words at the conclusion of his sermon of woe upon the Pharisees. So two weeks ago, last week, last week we looked at Psalm 139 for our Sanctity of Life message. So two weeks ago, we were looking at Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus delivered a series of woes upon the Pharisees. These were statements of judgments for their hypocrisy. The fact that the Pharisees said one thing, but they lived entirely a different way. And so Jesus, as God, knew the hearts of these individuals and knew how far they were from a genuine walk with the Lord, and he pronounced judgment upon them for that hypocrisy. And so these words function as the fulcrum where Jesus changes from this condemnation on the Pharisees and begins his Olivet Discourse. And so it's important context, an important connection between what he has said to the Pharisees and then what he prepares to say to the disciples. So notice that even though Jesus has been attacked by these Pharisees, even though Jesus has been maligned by them and maliciously spoken against by them, His heart is still a heart of compassion for them. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. His heart is compassionate for these individuals who want nothing but his demise. And yet, he still pronounces judgment on them. Behold, your house is going to be left to you desolate. That's a word of judgment from the Lord for them. Now, What is the reason for this judgment? Notice verse 37. Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, who kill the prophets and stone those who have been sent to her. This is a reference back to the parables that we looked at several weeks ago, where individuals would come from the master who represented God and would bring a message to the vineyard owners. And what would the vineyard owners do? Or those who were invited to the wedding banquet, they would kill the messengers who came and who were welcoming them into the kingdom. And so Jesus is clearly aligning the Pharisees with those individuals in those parables. And as we saw in those parables, judgment was always what happened to those individuals, those who did not respond well to the message of the Messiah, who did not recognize Jesus for who he was. And so the condemnation and the judgment that comes on the Pharisees is because they refuse to recognize the identity of Christ. They don't recognize that he is the Messiah, their Savior. Because they've rejected him as their Messiah and Savior, judgment will come. And so that's important to understand as we go into this passage, which deals with a lot of judgment. The judgment is centered on Israel's rejection of Christ as the Messiah. So now we pick up in chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple area and was going on his way when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. When he responded to them and said, he responded to them and said, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Notice that it's an assumption among the Pharisees or among the disciples that Christ is going to return. They already know and expect that there will be a return of the Messiah for a second time. And so their question is, when will that occur? Well, what precipitates this question is the whole conversation around the temple. 
And so remember, this dialogue with the Pharisees happened in the temple complex. And so now Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. They're crossing the Kidron Valley, and they're going up onto the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you have a magnificent view of the city of Jerusalem. It is splendid. And so as those disciples were going up the Mount of Olives, they could turn and could very clearly see the temple standing there in all of its glory. Now, the Jerusalem temple was one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. Herod was renowned for his building ability, and the temple took all of his creative energy, all of his architectural genius, and put it into one place. And so it truly was a magnificent structure. And so as the disciples were leaving the city and they were going up on the Mount of Olives, they could see the beauty of that temple, and it caused them to comment and to marvel upon it. And based on Jesus' reaction, what they were marveling at was the beauty of this temple and thereby the solidity of the religious faith of Jerusalem. This temple is so beautiful, it's so wonderful, it's so glorious, and God will never destroy it. God will preserve this place because we have the temple. And so the foundation of their faith was placed in this building and the structure that was there and their hope was attached to this building rather than the identity of their Savior, rather than to Jesus. So Jesus confronts that worldview and he says, the temple will not last and this building does not um, orient your hope. Your hope is grounded in me. Your hope is found in the Messiah. And so he gives this prediction where he says, Do you not see all of these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another. And true to form, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman soldiers. And Josephus gives us a very detailed account of how they destroyed the temple. And he describes them taking crowbars and prying every stone, a part of the foundation and the building, and rolling it end over end so that there was nothing left of the temple. All that was left of the original uh, temple that Herod built were the retaining walls that he put up in order to uh, level the ground so he could build the temple. That's the only thing that is left of that structure. And so Jesus' prophecy came, through, came true um, to that exact detail. And these were massive stones. I mean, these stones are huge. If you just look online for a picture of the temple stones, they're enormous, huge, huge stones that they turned end over end. So the disciples recognize that if the temple is being destroyed, it has to be related to the end of the age coming. That something as climactic as their temple being destroyed must be associated with the end of the world. And so they ask Jesus two questions. They say, please tell us when these things will happen and tell us what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. Now, Jesus in classic form chooses not to answer both of their questions. Which one doesn't he answer? He doesn't tell them when, right? Wouldn't it be nice if he told them when? That would be so, so nice. Take a lot of the confusion out of this passage. But Jesus, in his wisdom and his knowledge, doesn't answer when. He instead focuses on what the signs for the end of the times will be. And that's what he describes to the disciples and what he explains to them. And his point with that is our concern with the end of the world is less when it happens and more with how we ought to be living. Our concern as we approach the end of the world should be less with when it happens and our concern should be more how we are living in spite of that. 
Does our, does our attitude and our actions line up with the anticipated return of Christ? And that's the focus that Jesus points us with with his sermon here. So Jesus responds to them in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. I just want to stop right there. Okay, that's an imperative. It means it's a command. Jesus says, See to it that no one misleads you. Another way you could say this would be deceives you. This word is repeated throughout his sermon four or five different times throughout this chapter. It is clearly something that Jesus is very concerned about. The only other place we see this um, word pop up in a repetition like this is in the book of Revelation, where it's used to describe Satan's deceptive ministry at the end of the world. And so Jesus' concern, as we approach the end of the world, the first thing he wants you to know is do not be deceived. So what does that mean for us? Well, that means in our hearts and in our minds, we are going to be prone to be deceived when it comes to talk about the end of the world. We are naive, we are emotional, we are fearful people, and we are prone to be deceived when it comes to these matters and to these issues. And so the first thing we must do as we think about the end of the world is guard our hearts against being deceived and being misled. Notice in verse 5 what we have to protect ourselves against. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many people. Those who were coming to say they were the Christ were articulating a different form of salvation. That's really what Jesus is confronting here. Those who were coming saying salvation is found through my method or my way or through my ministry rather than the gospel of the kingdom that had been proclaimed clearly by Jesus. And so Jesus warns you to guard yourself against any false gospels that, per, that say there's a way of salvation other than the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, I think this is a very significant phrase, for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ, and it's repeated again later in the chapter. And so I want you to hold on to that phrase because we're going to talk about that at the very end of this passage because I think there's something very significant that connects these thoughts together. So then verse 6, he says, And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, and see to it that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So the first imperative that Jesus gives us is do not be deceived. The second imperative he gives us is do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. Do not be anxious because of what you see happening around you. But take confidence and be courageous in what God is doing. Now, notice where we root this courage. It's not found in in our preparation. It's not found in the buckets of pancake syrup we have in the basement or anything like that. Our courage is found in this. For these things must take place. What's communicated in that phrase? What's communicated is a plan, that God is in control of these things, that God knows what must happen and is purposefully and intentionally inaugurating His plan for the end. And so, because this whole process is rooted in God's character, His plan, and His ability, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be anxious or alarmed when we hear about these things because we know that these things are happening according to God's sovereign 
plan. And so, when we recognize that truth, we can rest in the knowledge that God is in control of these things. So I want you to think about the connection of those two things, the tendency we have to be deceived and misled and the tendency we have to be afraid, to be fearful as we approach these things. And I would submit to you that those two things are connected, that if we find ourselves feeling anxious or afraid about the end of the world, perhaps that's because we've been misled because we've been deceived and we haven't been taught correctly about the end of the world. And if we're trying to check to see if we are misled or deceived about these things, we should check our hearts for anxiety or fear about the future. I think the, the presence of one indicates the presence of another. And so our goal is to not be deceived and to approach these things with confidence and courage as we move toward the end of the world. Verse 7, Jesus continues, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, but all of these things are merely the beginnings of the birth pains. So again, these things don't indicate the end of the world, they indicate the beginning of it, or the the process toward it. So then we get more detail in verses 9 through 14. And as we read through these, I want you to notice the repetition of the word and, A-N-D. Then they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and mislead many people. And because, of lawless, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. Verse 13 starts with, But, but, there's the contrast, but the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. So those series of ands build the pressure that is going to be on us during this time. There's not just going to be one thing that we face, but there'll be a series of things that continues to get heaped upon us, pressure and more pressure during this time. They will hand you over to tribulation and kill you, but not just that. I guess like there's more you could do other than kill you. But not just that, many will fall away and you will be betrayed. And I love this language, right? Because it's popular, it's hip right now to talk about um, owning my own truth, right? And and this is my story as as I reject the faith and as I walk away from the Lord. And I wish people would just be honest and say, no, it's a betrayal, I'm betraying everyone that I love. I'm betraying the body of Christ. I'm betraying my Lord, and I'm going to walk headlong into sin. That would be a much more honest way to talk about that, right? Rather than I'm just going to have my story, and here's, here's my way of, of finding out my religion and truth. So they'll betray one another, and many false prophets will rise up and will mislead many people. And then verse 12 says, And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. And I think that's a wonderful phrase to summarize this whole season, right? So as lawlessness increases, people's love grows cold. What's the connection between those two things? Why as lawlessness increases, does people's love grow cold? Well, in a world without law, in a world with lawlessness where unrighteousness holds sway, we become fearful for ourselves, right? And our inclination is to turn inward, to care for my needs, myself, my family, and what I need. As the world all goes to pot, I want to focus on myself. 
and what I need. And Jesus pushes against that in verse 13. The one who endures to the end. The one who resists that temptation to turn inward and to just care for themselves, but the one who bears up under that burden of oppression and is still able to care for others and love, that is the person that we are called to be during this season. So think about these three imperatives that Jesus has given us, Jesus has given us that describe our attitude and our lifestyle during these end times. Don't be deceived. Do not be misled by the deceiver. Don't be alarmed. Be courageous and confident as you approach these things. And then finally, endure. Continue to do the love and the care that you are called to do. Live righteously and care for those around you. Don't resist the temptation to turn inward and only care for yourselves. Those are three really powerful imperatives, aren't they? Three very convicting things as we think about our normal attitude toward approaching these things. Our normal attitude when we face stress or when we face difficulty is always to turn inward, to give up. And Christ calls us to endure, not in our own strength, but in knowing and trusting His sovereign plan for the end of the world. The last thing that Jesus says in this section is in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, some people have interpreted this passage as causation, that in fact, the end of the world is based upon the gospel of the kingdom reaching all nations. And so it's not until missions is accomplished, it's not until the gospel goes to all people groups in all of the world that the end will come. And that could be the meaning of this passage, but what I think is, I think a better interpretation of this that is still focused on missions and the importance of it is to say that even in this time of pressure and difficulty and persecution, the gospel continues to go forward. God continues to save souls and continues to build His kingdom. The gospel is not silenced by persecution or suffering or hardship, but rather the gospel continues to go forward in that time. And isn't that true for us as well? We are not silenced. We are not beaten down by the persecution or the suffering that we face. But just as the gospel continues to go forward, we continue to be God's servants who take that gospel into the ends of the world, even in places that are full of suffering and hardship and persecution. I think that's a wonderful picture of the power of the gospel and the importance of it. Now, I know we have a lot more text to get through, but I've spent my, the bulk of my time on this section because I believe that this section describes the current time that you and I are living through. I think this is a description of the days that you and I are in. And so these things that we see in this passage, we should expect to see maybe an increasing uh, rotation, maybe in greater intensity, but we should expect to see these things. And so I think those three imperatives that Christ gives us in this passage are very applicable for our lives. I think these are exactly the way you and I should seek to live in these days. And now, in verses 15 through the end, Christ turns to talk about future things. Verse 15 says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. 
Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out of his house, and whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in that day. Moreover, pray that when you flee, it will not be in the winter or on Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. And if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or he is over here, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you all of this in advance. And so this is a description of the great tribulation that will come prior to Christ's return. So this is a description of the events that will unfold immediately prior to Christ's return. And notice that they are inaugurated by an event called the abomination of desolation. This is a prophecy that was predicted in Daniel Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. Um, There was a fulfillment of it in the first century where Antiochus Epiphanes entered the temple and slaughtered a pig on the altar. And as you know, pigs were an unclean animal. And so slaughtering that on the altar was a way to desecrate that sanctuary and that altar. Not only that, but he erected an idol to a Greek god in the temple as well. And so we're looking for an event of that nature or of that ilk, something like that that will indicate the inauguration of the Great Tribulation. And notice the the description of how awful that season will be. But it ends in verse 25 with, Behold, I have told you all these things in advance. And then Jesus indicates what will happen before his return, which gets to the question that the disciples asked him at the beginning. Verse 26, so if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man, the sign of the Son of Man, will appear in the sky, and then all of the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So here's the description of Christ's return. This is what it will look like when he returns. And what I want you to notice from this description is that Christ's return will be unmistakable. There's no way that you will miss Christ returning. And so if we think about those false teachers, right, going back to that thought I told you to hold in your head a little bit bit earlier, those who say Christ is out there or, or I am the Christ or come and follow me, that's not at all the way Christ is going to return in the second, for the second time. When Christ returns, it will be with power, it will be with glory, and it will be unmistakable. You're not going to miss it. When Christ returns, it's going to be an amazing event. Notice the celestial beings um, change their course in worship for Christ arriving on this earth. And so, the goal in Christ's return is not that we would find Him but rather it is Christ coming 
to gather his elect. Isn't that such a consistent picture with how Christ treats us through all of salvation? It's not a matter of us trying to will our way to Christ or trying to choose him, but always it is Christ calling us to himself, bringing us to himself, and saving us in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion. And even in the end of the world, as Christ returns to gather his elect, we see that action on his behalf. We don't have to worry about missing it. We don't have to worry about trying to find him because Christ is coming to gather his elect and he will draw us to himself for salvation. Now, the, the question that we have to ask then, with all of that, with, with the reality of Christ's return, knowing that Christ is going to return in a historical event, the question we have to ask is, how should we live? And I know that we talked about that Um, already, but that's going to be the theme that Jesus builds in the next couple of chapters. As he finishes his Olivet Discourse, he's going to talk about being ready for his coming and what it means to live in readiness for his return. And so that's where we'll be directing our attention um, in the next couple of weeks as we follow this. But for this Sunday, we, we revel in that truth about who our God is. He's a God who pursues us, who redeems us, and who calls us to himself, not out of any efforts that we do, but simply because of who he is. So would you join me in prayer as we close our time in the word? Father, we thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for its truth, and thank you that we can look forward to the historic and real return of you to this earth, to establish your kingdom Um, And we thank you so much for that truth. And Father, as we reflect on that truth and as we meditate upon it, we pray that you would um, grow in us a sense of confidence and a sense of courage as we face these difficult days and uncertain times. Would you help us not to be alarmed, not to be misled, and to endure in the face of great suffering and hardship. Father, I pray that as you return, you would find us worthy of you, that we would be faithful servants of you, and that we would remain holy even to the end of the days. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.